Morning, everybody. Morning. Hey, my name is David Soren. I'm the lead pastor here. Anybody ever heard of George Danzig? Uh, if you have, you're impressive. Uh, George Danzig was a mathematician. In fact, back in the Great Depression in the 1930s, uh, he was a math student at UC Berkeley. And those days were hard. They were hard for a lot of people in America. But if you were a math student, there weren't really that many jobs for mathematicians. And so you kind of had to be the best of the best to get a job. Well, George wasn't really helping himself one day when he came uh, pretty late to class. And he walks into his class, and on the blackboard, uh, there were two math problems. And so the professor had already moved on. He was talking about something else, and George saw the problem, so he just quickly copied them down. And then a few days later, he had been working feverishly on the homework of those two problems. He turned it into his professor, and he apologized. He said, I'm sorry, even my homework's late. But these problems were super hard. One of them I couldn't even solve. Well, a few weeks later, there's a pounding on George's dorm room door. And it's his professor at his dorm room. And he's saying, George, George, get up. George, George. And so George wakes up. He's like, what are you doing at my my dorm room? And he said, George, you made mathematics history. You solved it, George. You did it. See, What George didn't know is on the day that he came late to class, the professor had told the students, remember, don't be so hard on yourself. There are classic math problems that nobody can solve. And then he went to the blackboard and put up two of the classic math problems that nobody had solved, basically since people had thought of the actual problem. But George had come late to class and missed those opening remarks, and he had no idea that those problems were impossible to the math community at the time. He didn't even know that those problems actually weren't even homework, and so he just went home and got to work and did the impossible. Now, I want to come back to that in a few minutes, but for now, let's jump into the Bible. So everybody grab something to read here. Uh, If you don't have your own Bible, there's Bibles under the chair in front of you. Uh, We are going to be on page 152 this morning. Uh, We as a church, if you're new around here, we are going through the book of Joshua in the Old Testament. Uh, Joshua is the story of how God's people, the Israelites, entered into the promised land. And so we've covered how they've miraculously crossed the Jordan River, uh, they conquered the city of Jericho, the city of Ai, and then last week uh, we covered how they were tricked by the neighboring Gibeonites, who they were supposed to conquer, but the Gibeonites pretended like they were from far away, and so they tricked Joshua and the Israelites into signing a peace treaty with them. And this all happened, we were told, because the Israelites, they never prayed about it. They never consulted God's higher wisdom. Okay, so we're going to see what happens today. And what happens today is partly in light of that poor decision that they made uh, last week. Actually, it wasn't last week. It was thousands of years ago. Okay, Joshua chapter 10, uh, verse 1. It says this. Now, Adonai Zedek, the king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had taken Ai and totally destroyed it, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and that the people of Gibeon had made a treaty of peace with Israel and had become their allies. He and his people were very much alarmed at this because Gibeon was an important city, like one of the royal cities. It was larger than I, and all its men were good fighters. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, appealed to Hoham, king of Hebron, Piram, king of Jarmuth, Japhiah, king of Lachish, and Deber, king of Eglon. Come up and help me attack Gibeon, he said, because it's made peace with Joshua and the Israelites. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon, joined forces. They moved up with all their troops and took positions against Gibeon and attacked it. The Gibeonites sent word to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal, Do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us. Help us, because all the Amorite kings from the hill country have joined forces against us. 
Now, let's just pause just for a second and make sure we have our bearings, because there's a lot of names and places, and sometimes it's hard to keep track of it. But basically, you have these five kings of the Amorites. That's like the area of the southern part of the Promised Land. They've all joined forces together so they can actually fight and have a chance against Joshua and the Israelites. And they decide that they're going to attack Gibeon, the Gibeonites. And that's that group of people that just recently signed a treaty with the Israelites, thinking, well, are the Israelites going to defend this or not? And the Gibeonites probably send a runner to Joshua and says, who says, we're being attacked. Come and save us. So now we're going to see how Joshua is going to respond to this. So look back now to verse 7. It says, So Joshua marched up from Gilgal with his entire army, including all the best fighting men. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them. I have given them into your hand. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. After an all-night march from Gilgal, Joshua took them by surprise. The Lord threw them into confusion before Israel, so Joshua and the Israelites defeated them completely at Gibeon. Israel pursued them along the road going up to Beth Horon and cut them down all the way to Ezekiah and Makeda. As they fled before Israel on the road from Beth Horon to Ezekiah, the Lord hurled down large hailstones down on them, and more of them died from the hail than were killed by the swords of the Israelites. Okay, now, this is interesting because Joshua's in a bit of an interesting situation because, as we said, he signed this peace treaty with his nearby neighbors, the Gibeonites, that he shouldn't have done. And all of his people were mad about it. They're like, oh, what were you guys doing? And they're frustrated because they didn't inquire the Lord and they did the wrong thing. Now think about it. If you are in Joshua's sandals, isn't this kind of an easy way to get out of the bad deal that you made? Right, the rest of your enemies are they're coming to fight against this group of people that you shouldn't have signed a peace treaty with, wouldn't have been so easy to just go, oh, that's too bad. Good luck with that. Right? Really easy to do. And yet Joshua doesn't do that because he knows that you don't fix a sin by committing another sin. And that is an important biblical principle that we can't miss. I think it's really important for many of you at work. Right, you mess up, you lie, there's some sort of sin that happens. As a Christian, you don't fix a sin by committing another sin. We always do the right thing, and Joshua does the right thing, even though it's the harder thing. He does the right thing, and they march up, and they go into battle to begin to, to defend the Gibeonites. And so the Bible tells us in verse 9 that they do this all-night march from Gilgal to Gibeon, and we know that this was a massive march. And when they say all night, they really mean all night. So we know from geography that it was a 20-mile march. Not only that, but they're going up in elevation. In fact, they climbed 3,300 feet. So most scholars think this is probably an 8 to 10-hour literal all-night march. And so when they get to the battle, they're exhausted, right? Because they were up for a whole day. And then they march through the entire night. And then they enter into battle on no sleep, battle most of the day, and then they're pursuing the fleeing evil enemy. And because they're so exhausted, we see the Lord actually starts to help them out, and he rains down hailstones on the enemy. And the fact that he rains down hailstones is actually quite fascinating because the Amorites, which is the group of the southern people from the Promised Land, they worship their local false god that they worship is a god that comes up quite often in the Old Testament. It's the false god Baal. Now, in those days, the sort of local deities that they had, and this is true of like Roman and Greek mythology too, they all had sort of specific functions. Do you know what Baal's specific function was? He was the storm god. 
So think about this. Look, what is the Lord doing here? He's going, oh, storm God, huh? Okay. I'll show you who the storm God is, right? And he's showing the Amorites and even encouraging his own people that there is only one God. He is the God of the Bible, and he fights for us. By the way, if you have questions about the violence aspect of this, and many of you probably do, and that's fine. We bring our questions here because we believe this is true, so we believe we can ask questions of it. If you have questions about why is this violent, why, why is the Lord even participating in the violence? Next week, I want you to come back because we're going to get to a, a part of Joshua that's even more violent. And so we're going to take a week and we're just going to ask that question. Why is the book of Joshua so violent? And we're going to try and dive into the reasons behind that. So be there for that. Okay, let's keep reading. We have a few more verses to finish out this particular section. So we're on verse 12 now. It says, On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, Son, stand still over Gibeon, and you, moon, over the valley of Aijalon. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, till the nation avenged itself on its enemies, as it is written in the book of Jashar. By the way, uh, the book of Jashar is a lost book of history. Now, we don't have it anymore. What's really crazy is the Bible references the book of Jashar multiple times. So, I don't know, maybe we'll find it someday. But in that book, it also references this moment of the sun standing still. It says, The sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. There has never been a day like it before or since, a day when the Lord listened to a human being. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. Then Joshua returned with all of Israel to the camp at Gilgal. So let's just kind of set up the context of this battle. So Joshua, he's got all the southern kings, because they came together, of Canaan, of the promised land, and they're all together and on the run. From a military standpoint, this is a strategic opportunity of a lifetime, right? Only problem is the sun is going to go down. And when the sun goes down, it's going to be so much easier for all these guys to escape under the cover of darkness. And so Joshua prays for the sun to stand still. And what is, I think, Maybe one of the most amazing miracles of the entire Bible, right? We're told the sun stood still for almost an entire day. Now, let me say a couple things about this uh, scientifically, because I know some of you have questions, and this is a thinking church, and we, we like to answer some of the objections that people commonly have. So, first of all, if we say that the sun stood still, doesn't that kind of imply that the sun normally moves? And yet, it doesn't, right? It's the earth that moves around the sun, right? I would say this, don't let the language here uh, distract you. What the Bible is doing is it's merely using Joshua's observational language of what he saw. And before you're really hard on Joshua, realize that we still do the exact same thing today. So if you drive home today after the service and they do the weather on the radio, what are they going to say? They're going to say, and tomorrow the sun will rise at 6.05 a.m. You're not going to listen to that and go, you liar. I trust the science, right? So you're not going to do that because, you know, they're just making an observational comment. So let's not be so hard on Joshua because we still do the same thing thousands of years later, right? Secondly, though, and this is another question I think a lot of people have when they read Joshua chapter 10, is, okay, but how did this actually scientifically happen? How is that possible? There's really a number of possibilities here, and maybe there's one that makes the most sense to you. Uh, for, For one, it is possible because God can do anything, that God literally slowed the earth's rotation and then mitigated any other adverse gravitational effects. 
It's possible, right? Secondly, it's possible that God maybe used a, a miracle of refraction where the earth continued to rotate as normal, but then God caused the sun to shine on Israel from a different angle. Much like, do you ever see, like, you, you go to the lake or something, and you see how light shines on, you stick like a, a stick in the water, right? And you see light shines through water differently. Or here's another example of it. Let me show you this picture. So here's an example of a ray of light being refracted as it goes through a plastic block. And so it is possible that God miraculously refracted light around the earth to the promised land. Thirdly, it's also possible that God just provided a supernatural light to the Israelites that looked like the sun. I think we see examples of this kind of supernatural light and darkness elsewhere in the Bible. So for instance, if you go back uh, a little bit in the Bible to when the Israelites were still in Egypt, and you go to the ninth plague, the ninth plague in Egypt was the plague of darkness. And we're told there was total darkness for three days. So that's supernatural, right? In fact, we're even told that where the Israelites were out of town, that it wasn't dark. That's God just doing what he does, right? He can do the miraculous. Or even in the New Testament, you see this. When Jesus dies on the cross, we're told that it was completely dark for three hours. So that's a possibility. And if you're still here and you're going, mm, I don't know if I say this out loud, we're in church, but David, if I'm totally honest, it still just kind of feels like a fable to me or like a tall tale that they maybe would have told back in those days. Here, here's how I look at it. Uh, for those of you that were here in our Life's Biggest Questions series uh, back in February, uh, we discussed the overwhelming evidence that there was, that there is for the truth that God is the one that created the universe. Now, if that's true, if God created entire galaxies, like billions of galaxies, I mean, he literally spoke the word galaxy and planets everywhere. If God did that and you believe that, and by the way, most of you believe that, if we believe that, then listen, bending light for one day on one little planet isn't actually that big of a deal. This is a God who makes the impossible possible. It's kind of what he does. And that's a truth that we each need to remember, even in our own lives. Because some of us, we've been looking at the situations of our lives lately, and we've been labeling many things as impossible. Let me give you some examples. Some of you in here, you have a relative. Maybe it's a sibling of yours. It could be even one of your parents. In a, in a room this size, surely there are a number of you that have somebody like that that you haven't spoken to in years. And the idea of reconciling to you maybe feels impossible. There are others of you in here that maybe you've been plagued by a, a health problem and the doctors just cannot seem to figure out what the source of it is. And maybe it feels like it's going to be impossible to figure out. Maybe you're in here today and you've been living now with depression for so long that in your mind you're starting to say, it's impossible, it's never going to go away. Let me tell you what we do with impossible here at Renovation Church. You know what we do with it? We pray it. We pray the impossible. Why do we do that? It's because we worship a big God. So let me just ask you a few questions about what you believe. Here's the first one. How big is your problem? So I want everybody in the room, get, get, get a problem in your head. What is the obstacle in your life that you are facing right now? 
Get it in your head. For some of you, it, it may be a habit you feel like you can't change. For some of you, it is an adult child. It's a teenager who walked away from the Lord. For many of you, maybe it's like a thought pattern you can't seem to change. How big would you say that problem is in your life? For some of you, it feels humongous. Now, what I want you to do in your mind, think about that problem, and then I want you to take God and in your mind set him next to your problem. Now I'm going to ask you a second question, and then another question is this. How big is your God? And which one is bigger, your problem or your God? Now I know you know the answer to this, right? But on the other hand, I would ask, do you actually know the answer to this? Like, would the evidence of how you're living your life say that you truly do know the right answer to this? How big is your God, truly, in your mind? How, is, how big is God? Because the Bible says, Ephesians chapter 3, that your God is a God who actually can do immeasurably more than you could even imagine. How big is your God? And here's why that question matters so much. It's those who believe in a God that can do the impossible pray impossible prayers. Does that make sense? So if you actually believe in a big God, you believe, oh yeah, he does the impossible. Well, then guess what? You are going to pray impossible prayers. One of the verses that I was really struck by this week when I was studying this passage was verse 12. Joshua is there, and he's beginning this prayer, sun stands still, and it says that he prays it in the presence of the Israelites. And I just thought, whoa. Like, if that's me, if I ever even got the courage to pray a prayer that big, you know how I'd pray it? Off in a room by myself, right? Like, Lord, does he make the sun stand still? He, he says, in front of all the Israelites, he said, Lord, he's been watching what God has been doing right? And his faith continues to grow. And so we praise it. If I would, okay, if we were at an outdoor service right now, right? And I was on the stage and I said, let me just pray for a moment. And I said, Lord, would you make the sun stand still? Be honest with me. What would you think of me? You'd be like, what time's that Eagle Brook service? I'm like, right? You're like, this guy's lost his mind, right? But What's happening with Joshua? His faith is growing. You read through the first 10 chapters, he just, well, God, he moves the sea, right? The walls come tumbling down. God just keeps moving. And Joshua's faith is growing. And this is another one. The Lord's raining down hailstones on the believers of the storm. God is going, this is crazy. He's like, all right, I'm going for it. I'm going for it. And just in front of everyone, he says, Lord, we've got all the army here. This is an incredible opportunity. Lord, make the sun stand still. I love it. And here's what you need to know from God's word about God. God is not insulted by your big prayers. Did you know that you, you've probably never prayed a prayer too big for God? I think if anything, God is probably more insulted by our small prayers, right? You know, lots of times, even as believers in him who read this, we come to him and we say, Lord, if it's not too hard for you, if you're able, could you? And I think God's probably looking at us like, <laughs> like, you know I made the Milky Way, right? <laughs> like, I think I can get you a job in Ham Lake, okay? <laughs> no offense to Ham Lake. They have a lake shaped like a ham. It's just <laughs> unbelievable. 
And so as Christians, we need to stop categorizing things in our minds as impossible. You know, I think back to the math student, George Dancy, from earlier. Why did he solve the math problem? He solved the math problem that nobody else could solve because there was no preconceived notion in his mind saying it was impossible. It wasn't a roadblock for him. And so, by the way, what I'm saying, this is not some sort of secular humanism because you hear this in our culture that says, you can do anything you can set your mind to. And I think, no, you can't. You can't. But you know who can? He can. What does the Bible say? It says, through God, not through you, through God, all things are possible. Now, we want to be good students of the word, right? And so when you study the Bible, one of the things that comes out is you see, when you pray, there is always a biblical tension. And so we want to live in this tension. The tension is this. On the one hand, on the one end of the spectrum, yes, the Bible tells us you pray those impossible prayers. Absolutely. Sun stands still. On the other end of the tension is this idea that God is only going to answer those prayers if it's in his timing and in his will, right? That's what the Bible teaches. Now, there are some churches out there that they're way over here, right? And they're saying, you just pray it. If you have enough faith and you believe it and you claim it, then God will do it like he's some sort of genie in a bottle. That's not biblical, right? Now, I can't speak for every single person in here, but if I were to plot our church somewhere on that spectrum, on the continuum, Honestly, we're probably more over here as a bunch of people like to study and think. And a lot of us, I've, I've, like, I've been to house groups for years, right? I go every week, and I've heard a lot of people pray. And I hear a lot more prayers that sound like, Lord, if you would, if you are able, could you please make Grandma Ethel's ankle feel a tiny bit better? Right? We tend to pray a little. Very rarely does the guy next to him then stand up and say, Lord, make the sun stand still. We just don't, we don't pray a whole lot like that. And so, as Bible-believing Christians, we need to let passages like Joshua chapter 10 pull us. Even if it's uncomfortable for you, if you are a believer in God's word, you need to let that pull you a little bit back more towards the middle of the tension. So yes, we believe in God's will, We trust in God's timing, but we remember that our Lord Jesus Christ also said this to us. Matthew chapter 17, he said, Truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. And so Jesus Christ just told you, pray the impossible. He's saying to you that if that that obstacle that you're thinking in your mind, if you're going, that's a mountain, he's saying, then you come to me. You come to me and you say, Lord, move that mountain from here to there. He's saying, if you're going, that's impossible. He goes, yeah, well, everybody thought the sun standing still was impossible, but I can do that. Not impossible for me. You come to me. This is God's word. And so, yes, if your son walked out the door years ago and he said to you, I don't ever want to see your face again. And I want nothing to do with your God. What do you do with that? What do you do with that? Well, you can sit there in the pain of that, or you can pray the impossible. You can say, Lord, you are the God that parted the sea. You are the God that created the galaxies. You are the God that made the sun stand still, so you bring him home. That's the prayer of a Christian. 
if you're here and you've been weighed down by anxiety for so long that you're just going, it's, it's, it's never going to leave. And so, yes, there are, there are remedies, there are things that we can work through, but also believe that the Lord can set us free. You can pray, sun stand still. Move this mountain. Lord, move in my life. Yes, trust in his timing, trust in his will, but if we're going to be believers in this, then we've got to start believing again that God answers prayers in miraculous ways. Christian, if you don't believe that God can answer in miraculous ways, then I'm not sure how any of you think you're getting to heaven because that feels like a pretty miraculous journey to me. God can do that. And so this is how, this is how I balance it in my mind as a, as a faithful Bible-believing Christian. Think of it this way. We are to pray with such faith as Christians that we believe that God could make the sun stand still and yet trust him with the same level of faith even if he chooses not to. Right? Isn't that the prayer of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego on the fire? I was just thinking about that right now. Right? They say, our God is able, King Nebuchadnezzar, but even if he doesn't, it's the same level of faith. And so some of you, there's a number of young married couples in this, in this service even. If you're here and you've been unable to conceive, maybe for two years, what do you do with that? As a Christian, you still pray the impossible. You pray the impossible, even if it's been two years. And you believe that God can do it because he's the God that makes the sun stand still. And yet, because you also know that he's not just a genie who does your will, at the same time, with the same intensity, you're saying, but what's your will, Lord? What's your will? Is it adoption? Are you teaching us something else? But because you believe he can do it, you pray it. In fact, we're going to do something now. I'm I'm actually going to call our worship team back on stage. And what we're going to do is we're going to pray the impossible. We say that we're a Bible-believing church that believes in a big God, but we can't just merely mentally assent to that. We actually have to live it out. So we're going to worship here in a second. And in a few minutes, in a couple of minutes, I'm actually going to call up uh, all of our elders that are in this service, uh, their wives, our prayer team members that are in the service. In a few minutes, I'm going to ask them to come up. And what they're going to do is they are going to pray over some of you. So if you are here and you have an impossible prayer in your life, an impossible, and that's a ton of you, by the way, and you're going, it just feels impossible. What I want you to do is during this last song, I want you in faith to walk down towards the altar here and have one of these amazing people pray that impossible prayer over you and trust in God. Now, you may have to wait a minute. There are many, many people that came down last service. If you do, you have to wait a couple of minutes. Just wait, but please still come. We don't know what God's going to do, right? It may be that today is the first day you begin praying about it and he answers it in five years. But I would just say, if it takes five years, then start today. Don't start 10 years from now. Or it may be that he just answers it today, right? One of my favorite verses in all the New Testament is, you do not have because you do not ask. And so ask today, right? Maybe a month from now, we're just up here telling you about all the amazing things that God did on August 7th. The Lord can do it. (laughs) One of my favorite parts of, of this chapter is just thinking about how God reacted when Joshua said, sun stand still, Lord do it. You know, in my mind, I feel like God was saying, finally, somebody who will pray pray a prayer that recognizes what I can do. So pray a prayer like that this morning. Now, at this point, I'm going to ask all those uh, elders or wives, prayer team members, if you would stand up and you would just come forward and just kind of spread out on the floor around the stage to prepare to receive people in just a minute, that would be a blessing to us. And as they're coming, I want to say one more thing to you. There is a prayer that you can pray this morning that I can guarantee you the Lord will answer if it's pure from your heart. 
and that is the prayer of salvation. It is the prayer of you saying, Lord, I need you to come into my heart and forgive me and be the leader of my life. And for some of you, you're going, that feels impossible. Because David, if you actually had seen my life, you would know that I have messed up, I have sinned. I just, I'm a mess. He's not gonna love me. And I am telling you, you are wrong because he does love you and he proved it by sending Jesus to die on the cross for you. And all it takes, and there's so many people in this room that have made this decision, even recently, all it takes is you saying, God, I believe that Jesus died for me on the cross. I accept you as my leader and I invite you into my life. And if you do that, he will forgive you. You can have a relationship with him and you can have eternal life with him in heaven. From you saying, come into my life, I believe you die for me. So if you need to do that this morning, what I want you to do is I want you to walk all the way to the other side of the room against that wall. Over there is one of our pastors, Pastor Josh. He's waving right now. And I want you to walk over to him. Even if you got to walk from all the way over there, it is worth it. And he will pray for you and he will lead you in what to do next. And so we do a couple things here as we sing. If you have an impossible prayer, which many of you do, I want you to come forward in faith during the song and we will pray over you. And if you need to just make Jesus the leader of your life for the first time, you're going to walk over and see Pastor Josh. Can we do this? We got to do this. You know, one of, the, one of the ways that the American church is just going in the wrong direction right now is we're, churn, we're turning church back into some sort of spectator sport. We just come and you watch the band sing something. I hope you came here to meet with God today. And so come and trust in him and meet with him. Let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for what you're doing. We trust in you. We believe in you. God, we ask that you would do even miraculous things right now because you are the God that created galaxies. You can answer our prayers. It's in your name we pray. Amen.